Good morning. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you uh, open them up to John 8 and take a look just above the text that Heather read more than likely you see a bracketed explanation of what is below that, at least if you have the ESV or something like that. Let me let me read to you our church's and our de- denomination's doctrinal statement. It says that we believe, concerning the Bible, the Word of God, it says we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. That's a really good statement, and there's a lot there. But for the purposes of our passage this morning, the key phrase is, the Bible is without error in the original writings. And within that, the key word is original. It's key because as your Bible probably indicates, again, just above chapter 8, probably in brackets, John seven fifty three through eight eleven, two things, probably wasn't original to the Gospel of John and probably wasn't written by John. So again, a couple of questions, and then I'll come back to that. If these things are true, then three questions: Why were they? Or, uh, why were they included in certain copies that were circulated in the first place? Mainly beginning in around the eighth century. Second, why were they included in this place in John's Gospel? And third, why are they still in there today if these brackets are right? The answer to the first question, why were they originally included, is twofold. First, scholars have for centuries and still do to a very large degree today, have believed and do believe that the event described in this passage is real. That is, that it did in fact happen at some point in the life and ministry of Jesus. And second, that the account recorded in our Bibles today that this, this, these verses, the second reason why it was originally included, 
is that the account recorded as we see it here was quite possibly written by an apostle. It's certainly early and maybe apostolic, more than likely by Luke, if that was the case. The answer to the second question of why in this place, in John, is less clear. There's some some internal continuity, but in later manuscripts, it is found, when, it, when it's first found as circulating in the text, it's found in at least five different places. Three in John's Gospel, three different ones, including this one, and two in Luke's Gospel. Well, given the answer to the first question, the sentiment seems to have been, it needs to be in there somewhere. Let's see where we can fit it the best. But why here in John's Gospel, we're not finally sure. And the answer to the third question of why is it still in it, even if we think it probably doesn't belong here, if it belongs in the Bible, the answer to the third question is that the church has been rightly, rightly, very, very slow in doing anything to alter the biblical text as it has come down to us through the ages. It's been in there for 1,300 years. We're rightly very, very slow to do anything with that. Scholarly fads are all too common, meaning different scholars believe different things at different times, and then they just fizzle out, and we want to be careful of making any decisions based on that. And it is not certain. In fact, one of the eight, I read a lot on this this week, and one of the eight, in fact, the one that I respect the most as a man of God and a pastor and a theologian, believes that it is inspired and should be in this place in John. Uh, It's not entirely certain that it shouldn't. And so for those reasons, I'm going to speak on it in this, uh, this sermon in the context of the Sunday worship, but it may be news to you that there are certain words or passages in the Bible that we're not certain are original. And if that is, I really, really encourage you to talk to your discipleship group leader. Or come on up to me afterwards and we can talk more about this. But one thing you should know is that they're all indicated in your Bible, every place. Uh, in a footnote, it'll say some of the earliest manuscripts say they instead of him or something to that effect. They're all recorded in there. It's never been a secret or hidden. Um, and it's far less, all of it combined is far less than 1%, a, a tiny fraction of 1% of the text we have in our Bible. None of it deals with substance, substantive issues in the, of the gospel, I mean. Our passage is the most significant example of these disputed texts. The other one is Mark 16, 9 through 20. So if you I don't know, maybe right now, you could flip there and you'll see a similar note at the the very end of Mark. And when I preached through Mark's gospel back in 2007, or finished preaching through it, uh, maybe it was 2008, I didn't preach on that passage in Mark for that reason. Given all of this, five things to keep in mind. And incidentally, this is the first of two introductions and none of this counts for my time of the sermon. (laughs) This is, this is bonus content for your benefit. I already know all this, so <laughs> this, this doesn't count. All right. Five things to keep in mind then as I work through this, this passage, this, this, this text. Number one, because it probably happened and is possibly re- written or recorded down, it was, it's old, was written by an apostle, possibly. 
I'm going to cover this passage here. It, it may be original and it may be inspired, but it probably happened and was quite possibly written by Luke. But because it probably wasn't original, probably wasn't, or written by John, I think it's better to think of what I'm about to do as a standalone lesson that's entirely consistent with the picture we have of Jesus in the Bible, rather than an ordinary expositional sermon. So have that in mind. Number two, I'm not going to try to link it then with the rest of John's gospel. In fact, it's a little bit of a bummer that it is where it is, because the the last passage we looked at last week and the passage that we'll look at next in John, which is going to be two weeks from now, they go together really well. And so we're going to have this unfortunate two-week gap between them, and I'll try to I'll try to bring them back together when I preach on it. But I'm not going to try to link this with the rest of John. Third, we should try, or we should avoid, probably, any attempt to establish doctrine from this passage alone. What do I mean by that? Number four, we should have confidence in any conclusions or applications we draw from this, only insofar as we see them plainly taught in other non-disputed passages, which I'll try to do even more than usual this morning. And fifth, again, uh, the elders and I, we, we talked about this throughout the week and the best way to present this, and none of us are overly confident in that, but we're all eager to speak with you, whether in DG or privately, if you have more questions about any of this, or if you would like to see the scholarship that drives this. Well, in spite of all of that, that might sound sort of depressing, <laughs> but in spite of all of that, it is my hope that rather than serve as a discouraging or, or doubt-casting confession— I remember being a little rattled when I first heard this kind of thing. This intro and this message, it's my hope and expectation even, that it will in fact give you greater confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible and provide you really with a beautiful picture, a historical picture, almost certainly, of the love of our Savior in action. So let's pray and then dive into the real introduction, the real sermon. God, thank you for this people. Thank you that this is a thoughtful people. Thank you that we understand that most of the people in this room understand that you have given us your word and inspired men to write it down. And insofar as what we have is consistent with the original writings, it is entirely inerrant. We can have great confidence that what is contained in this book and in our Bibles is almost entirely what was originally written. Thank you that there are very few places that we're not sure, and thank you that those places are not substantive. Very grateful for that. We're grateful that you love us and that not only did you inspire but preserved your word for for your people. Grateful for that. I'm grateful for the picture of Jesus that's painted in these words and in this text, and I pray that we would be encouraged by it, even if in no other way than to remind us of other passages of the Bible um, that we're confident are original. I pray that you'd give your people this morning good questions to ask, good thoughts to think, and above all, that you would remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. So in this chunk, the first two verses provide with us a backdrop to the scene. 
there's a pretty dramatic scene that takes place, and verses 1 and 2 sort of set the scene for us. In them, we see that those who were with Jesus previous to this event uh, went to their homes, and that Jesus spent the night alone on the Mount of Olives. We see that early the next day, Jesus went back into the temple, sat down, and began teaching. The time, this time, Jesus taught in the public court. There would have been a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of people all around the public court of the temple, which was a normal thing for rabbis to do, making himself easily seen and heard by anyone who was so inclined. It also indicates that by the time that the bulk of the passage takes place, Jesus had drawn a a decent-sized crowd to listen to his teaching. Well, then the rest of the passage, verses 3 through 11, tells us that at some point in the course of this teaching, he sat down, began teaching, a crowd came, and at some point within all of that, a group of Jewish leaders, scribes and Pharisees, interrupted Jesus by bringing an adulteress before him in an attempt to trap him. Ultimately, this really is a simple story. It's a simple story of the unparalleled love, unparalleled in any other man that had ever walked the face of the earth, unparalleled love of Jesus Christ. That is, it is not primarily the story of corrupt religious leaders, the role of the law and the lives of God's people, the mysterious writing of Jesus in the ground, which we never find out what he wrote and no one ever even says anything about it in the story. And it is not even primarily a story of the adulterous woman, which is how it's normally framed. First and most, it is a living picture of John three sixteen to 18 in action. Remember what Jesus said in John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world, or what was said of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed, or in this case, she has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This this passage, whether it's original or not, is a remarkable picture of John 3.16 to 18 lived out. And so with that in mind, this passage does describe the trickery of the scribes and Pharisees, and it does give us a picture of salvation in the woman. Above all, though, in those two things, they're meant to help show something even more significant. The unmatched wisdom of Jesus, the unmatched courage, mercy, and grace of Jesus combined the unparalleled love of Jesus, the unparalleled love of Jesus expressed. And so let's dive into each of these those, those things now beginning with the trickery of the scribes and the Pharisees. The main point of the passage isn't about these guys, again, but they did contribute something important. Their important contribution is a kind of shenanigans. Kids, write that word down, shenanigans. A kind of devious shenanigans that served, this is not the place you want to have in God's story, but this is the place, at least in this scene, they had. 
Their shenanigans serve to provide a stark contrast with Jesus' love. Their unlove stood in stark contrast to make Jesus' love seen even more clearly. It is the self-serving deceitfulness of the scribes and Pharisees that gives the righteous love of Jesus such a clear opportunity to shine in the darkness. Four ways the trickery shows up. You ready? The first is from verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees, maybe you already noticed this. Who did they bring? They brought only the woman to Jesus. Adultery, as you know, requires two parties. The fact that the text tells us that they caught the woman in the act means, by definition, that they caught the man in the act too. And yet, it was the woman alone, the most vulnerable to manipulation, the least able to defend herself from injustice, and the one who was able to put up the least resistance and was the easiest target that they brought. There's trickery in that. Number two, that they brought the woman to Jesus, to Jesus, not the ones responsible to make rulings in such cases. The Sanhedrin held court for matters such as this. It was responsible among the people of God for rendering a verdict and prescribing the proper God-ordained sentence. Jesus was neither a member of the court or the Sanhedrin. He had no earthly authority and no authority at all in the eyes of the men who stood before him. Their trickery is seen in the fact that they brought the woman before Jesus instead of the place that they should have brought her. But why? That leads to the third way, the third point, the third way that we see trickery in this. They brought the woman before Jesus in order, as the text tells us explicitly, to trap him. Their question itself wasn't even genuine. Tragically and treacherously, the men most who most postured themselves as experts in the law and as those most who postured themselves as most serious about keeping the law were entirely uninterested with the law itself here. In fact, this really isn't a question of the law at all. There is no real question here. The law is clear. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. It's plain. There's nothing controversial or confusing about that. So what was the trap? The gist of the trap is this. If Jesus were to show compassion, as he had a reputation for doing, and suggest that the woman should not be stoned according to the law, he could be charged with advocating the breaking of the law of Moses. But, on the other hand, if Jesus insisted that the woman should be stoned according to the law, he could be charged with promoting insubordination or insurrection among the Romans, who at the time demanded to have oversight over all capital punishment. Again, look at verse 6. All of this was simply a trick and a trap for Jesus. They said this in order to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Fourth and finally, their trickery is seen in the fact that when left with the face of the consequences of their own scheme, when left to face the consequences of their own scheme, they turned away. When Jesus turned the question back on them, and we'll see that when we talk about the wisdom of Jesus displayed in this passage, when he turned the question back on them, Rather than stay, stand firm on what they thought was right, they went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Grace, even if this passage doesn't belong in this place in John, it presents a picture of the Jewish leaders that is consistent with the rest of John's gospel. It shows them to be confused, cowardly, hypocritical, and more interested in maintaining power than doing the will of God. But again, all of that simply in this chunk served primarily to best show the unparalleled love of Jesus. Acts of cowardice or acts, acts of bravery are seen most clearly right next to acts of cowardice. Acts of integrity are seen most clearly right next to acts of a lack of integrity or cowardice. And that's where we'll turn now, this unparalleled love of Jesus that this tricky work of the Pharisees and scribes is meant to help us see better. Again, according to John 3.16, it was the love of God that brought Jesus into the world and salvation through him. But as I mentioned earlier, true love, this is, this is a big deal. True love is always incarnate. Jesus himself shows us that in his person. But true love is always incarnate. It always takes on flesh. It always becomes, it works itself out into reality. It is not an unexpressed feeling. True love is never an unexpressed feeling. It is benevolence lived. In our passage, the lived out love of Jesus took several forms. Again, wisdom, courage, mercy, and grace. Let's, let's look at those. If love is something like affectionately pursuing that which is best for a person, If love is affectionately pursuing that which is best for a person, and wisdom is something like knowing what's best, then you can easily see that wisdom is a fundamental component of love. For how can we affectionately pursue that which is best for someone if we don't know what's best for them? Love requires wisdom. Jesus' wisdom was on display in a couple ways, two two in particular. First, we see it in verse 2 in simplest form. And that all the people came to him to be taught by him. This was mainly because many people recognized that Jesus possessed a wisdom that was truly extraordinary. That's the consistent teaching of the gospel writers. In Matthew 13, we read, Coming to his hometown, Jesus taught, similar to this, but in the synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Similarly, in Mark 6, We read, on the Sabbath, he began teaching again in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Where did this wisdom come from? What is this wisdom given to him? Jesus' wisdom is seen here in the simple fact that people came to him to gain his wisdom and were astonished when he gave it to them. But there's a second way, and an even more fundamental and important way to this passage, that we see the unparalleled Love of incarnate Jesus, incarnate as wisdom. We see it in his response to the tricky trap of the Jewish leaders. We saw earlier that the scribes and Pharisees had gone to great lengths to set this up, this trap up for Jesus. They seemed confident in their plan as we read these words. It seemed at first, if you just slowly read through it, that it was going well. Jesus failed to answer their First volley of questions just sort of went down and wrote something in the dirt instead. We, we don't know what it is, but if we didn't know any better, it looked a, like a delayed tactic maybe, or 
But then in his wisdom, in a single sentence, they came, who knows how long, how many days they planned this out, worked their best to get Jesus in a place that they could come up with some charge against him. And in a single sentence, he unraveled it all. This is awesome. In a single sentence, Jesus upheld the law and simultaneously turned both the issue of Roman insubordination and adultery itself back on his questioners. There were two main, you remember, there's two main parts to their trap. What would he do with the law? What would he do with the Roman authorities? And in a single sentence, Jesus turned all of that back on them. The single sentence was this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In these words, Jesus acknowledged that the law was clear and authoritative on the issue, that the woman was guilty. And with these words, Jesus also made it clear that those who brought the woman to Jesus and laid the trap for him would have to decide whether they would keep God's law or the Roman law. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus upheld the authority of the, the law by admitting that a stone ought to be thrown, a first stone ought to be thrown. But in so doing, he pointed the scribes and Pharisees to another aspect of the law. Get this. This is, this is remarkable. Deuteronomy 17.7 says that when it comes to a capital crime, this is the law of God, more than one witness is needed. Good. It also says, and here's the key, that the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. You get that? Jesus acknowledged the first stone should be thrown, but he said, this law that you're bringing to me, this law you're asking me about, we should keep it. And it says that you, the witnesses, the ones who caught her, are the ones who need to throw that first stone. Jesus wasn't saying that a stone shouldn't be thrown. He was saying it was and that they were the ones who needed to do it. In other words, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you're right, the law commands that an adulteress should be stoned to death, along with the adulterer. And you're right to have brought several witnesses. Great job, guys. You're keeping the law. Good work. Now keep the whole law, and you throw the first stone. What's more, Jesus turned the crime itself back on the witnesses. Well, he turned the law back on them in the second half of the sentence, be the first to throw a stone at her. He turned the crime itself back on them in the first sentence. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to do that. Jesus wasn't saying that only sinless people could be a part of executing judgment according to God's command. Instead, it seems that Jesus was directly accusing them of the very same crime that they were accusing her of. If you're going to stone her, you must stone yourselves too, essentially is what he said. That his accusers understood it this way, that they understood Jesus' wisdom is far superior to theirs in a single sentence. He undid days of planning. That they understood all of that, we see in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Loving someone well, grace, requires the wisdom to know what is best for them. Jesus' wisdom is seen clearly here in exposing the leader's hypocrisy and providing the woman with an opportunity for redemption. The second way in which we see the unparalleled love of Jesus in the flesh is in his courage. Sometimes the pursuit of that which is best for another, love, loving them well, is costly. 
It can be difficult, as we all know, to know what is best for a person sometimes. And sometimes it can be even more difficult to carry that out. And in those cases, love requires courage. The consistent picture of these Jewish leaders throughout the Gospels is bullies. They regularly used their learning and authority to shame and guilt to manipulate people who challenged them. We've seen this several times in John's Gospel as we've made our way through it. For instance, in last week's passage, remember Nicodemus? All he said before these people, or people like them anyway, all he said was that, hey, whatever we're going to do with Jesus, we need to be sure that we're being consistent with our own teaching and our own convictions, with the law of God as we understand it. That's all he said, and they mocked him for that. Likewise, back in chapter 7, verse 10, we read that it was for fear of the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, these people, that the crowds were afraid to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. And in chapter 5, again, in another example, these same people tried to intimidate the man that Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda for simply acknowledging that he had been healed by the pool of Bethesda. The leaders had significant power. This is key to this. They had significant power to put people out of the temple or the synagogue, power to interrupt their very livelihoods, their jobs, their ability to provide for their families, power to make not just someone's life that crossed them difficult, but their whole family as well, power to ruin reputations, power to drive people from the land itself, even power to put people to death. For the first century Jew, government, family, religion, and work were all intertwined in a remarkable way into a single system. And the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus here had power over almost all of that. The key is to understand that standing up to them is no small thing to do, which is why so many of the crowds cowered so often in front of them. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the fact that the Jewish leaders in the Gospels are repeatedly said to be plotting not just to make Jesus' life harder, but to kill him. And we know eventually, and Jesus knew then, they would be successful. In the face of all of this, Jesus feared no man. His courage was unwavering. He was so committed to giving his life as a ransom for the world that he had no fear of giving his life or anything else they could do to him. Thus, when pressed and cornered by the leaders rather than back down, Jesus showed his love for the worlds and courageously remaining true. In this, we're confronted with the question of our own courage. We're meant to look at this and consider our own lives. How much are we willing to risk for the sake of identifying with and following Jesus? When confronted with mockers or enemies of the cross, as Jesus was in this story, what will you do? What have you done? What will you do? Well, more than just wisdom and courage, Jesus' love took the form of mercy. That is, in compassion for the hurting. While the woman was indeed guilty of adultery, and while the crime and consequences were indeed as serious as they come, that the men brought only her, that they brought her to the center of the most public place, that they made her stand alone, in the midst of everyone, that they were using her guilt merely as a tool for accomplishing their own twisted purposes, all of those things meant that the woman was truly in a lowly place, maybe the lowliest of all. While Jesus in no way condoned her actions, 
He was not indifferent to her as a person. He showed significant mercy to her where others did not. Jesus commanded his followers to be merciful. In Matthew 7, blessed, he says, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In Luke 6.36, he said, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. He promised more than once, including in passages like Luke 4, that he would be merciful to the lowly. And most significantly, rather than just command and promise it, Jesus was merciful. It's the unwavering picture of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus showed mercy to the woman at the well, to the paralytic, to the lost, and to the sick, to the hungry, to the blind, to the leper, to the paralyzed, to the demonically oppressed, to a grieving man whose child had just died, and mercifully on and on. In this passage, Jesus was primarily dealing with the treachery of the scribes and Pharisees, but in so doing was given the opportunity to express his love and his profound mercy to the lowliest of women. And in that, we are rightly faced with the question of our response to those who are hurting. Much of hers was self-induced. She brought it upon herself by the choice that she made, her lowliness. But Jesus was merciful to her anyway. What form does your mercy take? What form does your love take? Does it take the form of mercy? And how does that show up? The religious leaders' lack of mercy, the lack of mercy among the religious leaders stood in stark contrast with Jesus in this. His is seen so much more plainly because their mercilessness is seen so plainly. And so we ask ourselves, what does this look like in my life? And finally, more even than his wisdom, more even than his courage, and more even than his mercy. Jesus' love here took the form of amazing grace. Mercy is compassion for the hurting. Grace is help for sinners. We need to, as we'll see in just a moment in the final section, Jesus offered this guilty woman a way of having her sin, the one she was caught in and dragged before them in light of. He offered her a way to be forgiven of her sins and reconciled to God. She deserved death, but Jesus offered his in her place. Grace, consider the love of Jesus. His love expressed is filled with wisdom, courage, mercy, and grace. That is the heart of this passage, and that is the love he has shown to you and to me and to the world and to all who would receive him. Would you consider that again today? It's easy to think generically of the love of Jesus or or not to think of it at all. But to think in such specific terms, would you think of that afresh today? Would you ask God to help you to receive that through Christ, to receive and know that you have the love of God in this form and greater still? And would you ask for God's help to live that out in the world, in your home, in your neighborhood, and wherever you go to the ends of the earth more faithfully today? That's the heart of this passage. Well, finally, unfortunately, I mentioned earlier, when this passage is addressed, almost every time I've ever seen it, it is often with the woman at the center. It's understandable. It's compelling. It makes for a good story, especially for any who can understand the pain and loneliness of sinning in ways that are particularly egregious that have been made public. It's a really tempting thing to to preach on or to make at the center. 
It is understandable and it is compelling, but it is also misguided. The woman isn't named. She barely speaks. Not a single description is given of anything she did in the presence of Jesus. But again, like the scribes and Pharisees, while she isn't the center of the story, she contributes something significant to it. Do you know what that is? Do you know what she contributes that's significant? She provides a remarkable picture of what it looks like to have nothing, to bring nothing. To undeservedly saved by the loving, sovereign grace of God. She brought nothing but guilt, shame, and weakness. And all of those things in this story help us to see more clearly that Jesus brought plenty of innocence, glory, and strength. She didn't need those things. Jesus brought those. You and I don't need those things. Jesus brings those and provides those for us. Jesus' love came to the woman in a manner that graciously offered to her eternal salvation, not merely salvation from the imminent stoning that she deserved. And to best see that, there are two particular things that we need to see very briefly. The fact of her sin and the means of redemption that Jesus offered her. We now live in a culture where a person suggesting that adultery, which we now call an affair because that sounds better, We now live in a culture where a person suggesting that adultery is a sin deserving any kind of negative consequence is more likely to be shamed than a person who commits adultery. We've gotten that far. That's where we are. This couldn't be further from the truth, and it certainly couldn't be further from this culture. Well, that's where our culture is. That is absolutely not where this culture was. As we saw earlier, the fact and consequences of the woman's sin were clearly established. They were unquestionable. She committed adultery. There were a sufficient number of witnesses, which is sort of weird, but there it is. And the divinely prescribed sentence was death by stoning. All that is said. In a very real way, the woman brought before Jesus was condemned and powerless to do anything about it. And so are we. That is what sin does. All of it. Not just hers and not just this egregious one and not just this public one. The key for us to see here is that the love of Jesus offered to you and to me and to all, if not physical adulterers, spiritual adulterers, for chasing after the foreign gods that we read earlier are nothing. We're all that way. That's the consistent picture the Bible paints. And the key for us to see here is that the love of Jesus is offered to all, but only able to be received, not by those without this, but those who will acknowledge that they have this, those who acknowledge their sin, its fatal consequences, and our inability to do anything about it on our own. The first thing to see as I wrap up is that there can be no loving grace, no forgiveness, and no salvation where there is no humble acknowledgement of sin. Again, the first thing to see is that in the woman, there most certainly was sin that needed to be forgiven. That leads us to the second thing and two questions in conclusion. Would the woman acknowledge this? Would she acknowledge that she was in fact sinful and needed forgiveness and redemption, not just to be saved from stoning, but from her sin? And what could be done about it? What could be done about this? It was a terrible sin. and It was public and the law was plain. What could be done about it? Let's look at verses 9 to 11 one more time answer those questions in reverse order. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. An uncareful reading of these verses might sound like Jesus told the woman something to the effect of, yeah, you, you did something you shouldn't have, but, but don't worry. I won't hold it against you. You're, you're fine. Just try to do better next time. Tragically, that's a version of the gospel that many churches preach today, but that's not what's happening here. As you may remember from John 3, to come back to where we began, this is a living picture of John 3, 16 to 18. You may remember from that passage, the fact that Jesus did not come into the world, the fact that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, doesn't mean that he never passed judgment on sin or acknowledged that people were guilty of sin or that it deserved death. It doesn't mean that. It means, rather, that he didn't need to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. This woman was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the condemned world. He didn't come to condemn this woman. He came to save this condemned woman. Thus, when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, he was saying, in effect, you're already condemned, but that's why I'm here. I came to rescue you from that. So what solution then did Jesus offer? How might the woman escape her condemnation if not just by sweeping it under the rug or suggesting adultery isn't a sin or that "Ah, you misunderstood the law? It doesn't require that. He didn't do any of that. So how did he help her to escape? Or what, what means did he give her to escape that condemnation? He said, go and sin no more. Well, wait a minute. Again, on the surface, with an uncareful reading, what that means might not be obvious. It sounds at first like the woman needed to stop committing adultery or whatever other sins she might have been committing, and Jesus would expunge the condemnation of those things for her record. It's sort of like, hey, clean yourself up, get yourself right, and I'll forgive you for it. The Grace Church, once again, that's emphatically not what Jesus was telling her. Her charge to her was repent. From now on, go and sin no more. But you know, and I know, that repentance is one side of the coin of faith. Belief is the other side, and a prerequisite for repentance. In other words, if the woman did not believe in Jesus, she would not obey his command to repent. To be clear then, Jesus was calling the woman to place her faith in him, to trust in him. For her redemption, if it was to come to her, would come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or nothing. There is no other means by which she might have been saved or that you and I might be saved. Jesus was able to offer this because he would soon die in her place. Taking upon himself the just penalty for her sins. And all of that leads to the second question in my conclusion. What was the woman's response to all of this? There's some contextual and grammatical hints that the woman might have believed in Jesus and received forgiveness by grace through faith. People that I respect very much, commentators and pastors, see it that way. I don't don't think that's what this text is saying. I don't believe that's this passage tells us how she responded at all. In some ways, that, I think, that it doesn't tell us is an even more powerful ending. It it leaves you and I, all of us, having considered the unparalleled love of Jesus, the rejection of that of the scribes and Pharisees, and the uncertainty of what the woman would choose. It, it leaves us 
wondering what she would choose. I, I say that's even more powerful, and then it puts it before you and I as well. We have to choose also when we see it like that. Will you acknowledge your sin and its consequences before a holy God? Will you trust in Jesus and receive the unparalleled love displayed in this text? Or will you remain obstinate like the Pharisees and scribes? We remain obstinate, rejecting it entirely, or perhaps undecided like the woman seemed to be. And again, the reason that is most powerful is because both of those things, one seems serious and grievous and the other seems less so, but both result in remained, remaining in condemnation. Jesus does offer his love to you and to me and to all who will hear these words. But as we've seen over and over, He offers a particular form of love, and on his terms, and his terms are genuine faith in him. This is a story of Jesus' unparalleled love, shown most clearly in contrast to a a broken sinner and prideful religious leaders. The story and the contrast help us see more plainly the gospel that is offered to us. We bring nothing but our sin and rebellion, our, our adultery before God. He provides for us what he requires of us in the death and resurrection and righteousness of Jesus. May we receive it in faith.